0: Institute of Art and Ideas, Articles, Videos and Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.
1: So reason was traditionally seen as the Enlightenment's great legacy and the origins of our success. Yet reason is increasingly derided as just
0: the rhetorical bluster of the educated elite, typically powerful and male. This week, our speakers question whether rationality is the right way to think.
1: Is rationality just the
0: prejudiced claims of those who are sure they are right?
1: Were we mistaken to think that reason drives progress? Or is it an unassailable tool for social harmony and future flourishing?
0: Taking on these questions, we have Professor of Religion and author of Pantheologies, God's Worlds and Monsters, Mary Jane Rubenstein. Professor of Philosophy at New York University, Paul Boghossian. And finally, Theologian and Scientist at the University of Oxford, Alistair McGrath. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and if you want more on this topic from Philosophy for Our Times, give a listen to episode 143, The New Enlightenment, with Amy Thomason, Julian Buggini, and Hilary Lawson, who pick up on the rise of rationality during the Enlightenment and assess whether our limits to knowledge are so profound they've eclipsed the Enlightenment's dream. Please do subscribe to our podcast and also to our weekly newsletter, which gives you a hand-picked selection of our top podcasts trending that week for you to download when you're on the move or whenever you listen to the podcast. Head to www.iai.tv and visit the IAI podcast page to sign up. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Back now to Danielle Sands, who hosts this week's episode.
1: So, Mary-Jane, perhaps you can kick things off. Is rationality just the
2: prejudice claim of those who think they are right? Okay, I'm going to jump right in, um, and I'm going to say no, it's a lot worse than that. (laughs) (laughs) For mainline Western philosophy, rationality is said to be the mark of the human, and as such, it promises wonderful things like equal rights, neutral judgment, uh, the nonviolent exchange of ideas, so I can see the attraction. Uh, The problem is, I'd like to say, that the category of humanity that's defined by means of rationality is less a force of capaciousness and equality than of exclusion and domination. Three examples very quickly first. The rationality still said to distinguish the human from every other species justifies the unconditional exploitation of the whole earth toward human ends. It's their alleged irrationality that condemns cows, chickens, pigs, and goats to mass death that feeds and clothes us, and that allows whales and dolphins and seabirds to be suffocated by the plastic bags that make our lives a little easier. Second, rationality sets humans apart from those whom Aristotle called natural slaves, which is to say, people who don't think so well and who therefore need to be guided or as the later tradition understood, owned by others. Uh, this logic, and it is a logic, of natural slavery was applied to those Africans who were stuffed into transatlantic cargo carriers in the 16th century, giving rise to what Frank Wilderson exposes as a glaring contradiction between the Enlightenment's obsession with freedom and its condoning or even justification of slavery. This legacy continues uh, in the US especially to subject black bodies to constant surveillance, uh, serial imprisonment, and execution by an overarmed police force. Third, the category of rationality justifies the ongoing global subjection of women and by extension queer and gender non-conforming people thanks to their insufficient reason, Thomas Aquinas called women misbegotten men. Uh, 19th century psychiatrists diagnosed them as hysterical, you know, with wombs traveling all over the place. Babies, I need babies. And contemporary discourse uh, still encodes women as tending excessively toward emotion. So I have nothing against... i have nothing against the faculty of reason, I'm presumably using it right now, Uh, but categorically, rationality has functioned to secure a cosmic hierarchy that condemns non-white, non-male, and non-human lives to belittlement, exploitation, and death, rendering them frankly incapable of delivering a rational set of objections to that situation.
1: That a bold start. <laughs> oh, no. Paul, is rationality just the prejudice claim of those who think they're right?
3: No, it's <laughs> not, and um, it's um, alarming to hear that it uh, could even be thought to be. You know, we have to distinguish with, with regard to any concept or the concept itself from uses and abuses of that concept. So, you know, there's, Everybody knows that on the gate at Auschwitz uh, there was a, the inscription was Arbeit macht frei. So there, you know, the concept of freedom there was being abused. That doesn't, just because somebody put the concept of freedom to a bad use, doesn't mean that the concept itself is objectionable or the, uh, the, the, the aims that the concept observes are objectionable. So just as Mary Jane just now said, presumably she was claiming, that various of the things that she was pointing out as abuses of the concept of rationality, that it's rational for us to believe that they were abuses of the concept of rationality. There is no escaping this. The notion of rationality in its bare form is just the idea of being responsive in your, the management of your beliefs to what reasons there are for believing those things. Okay. So to that extent, no one can escape Even when you want to say, I am a skeptic about rationality, you give an argument and you hope the argument persuades by showing you that it's rational to believe it. So at the end of the day, there really is no real question about whether you need to rely on reason. What are you going to do? Rely on whistling or rely on music? Uh, To the extent to which what you're interested in is making a case for the truth of what you believe. You have to present reasons for that belief. And they have to be epistemic reasons, not just prudential reasons or aesthetic reasons or uh, moral reasons. They have to be reasons that show that the belief has some chance of being true. That goes for any belief, even as you ascend the hierarchy of the most abstract or meta-beliefs that are themselves about the concepts of reason and logic and so on. The only really interesting question there can be is a rational debate about what the correct rules of rationality are. And the great achievement of the Enlightenment was to see that um, with respect to a whole range of subject matters, in particular what we call empirical subject matter, the correct rules of rational belief fixation or what we know as the scientific method, okay, uh, and the use of logic rather than, for instance, theological speculation or other kinds of a priori prejudice that one might bring to the table. Uh, So, I believe that over and over again the leitmotif of this debate will be there is no escaping uh, the clutches, as it were, of rationality. And it is no part of the notion of rationality that you should subject blacks or women to oppression or that you should do any of the bad things that Mary Jane was highlighting.
1: Thank you. So would you like to step in at this
4: point? Well, I I very much hope that reason will deliver us from things that are wrong, but I I have my worries about this. I think what I want to say is this. We, We are able to reason, but that form of reasoning is shaped by the enterprise we're undertaking. Each scientific discipline uses reason in different ways. uses different criteria of rationalization, each culture, unless of course they're suppressed by some other culture will develop its own way of thinking. And for me, talking about reason is is about rational faculties, but it does not necessarily mean that you have the delivered outcomes with certainty that kind of will bind us all together. So I look at the Enlightenment, uh, which I I have great respect for, but I also note the problems that we find. For example, if you look at the French Enlightenment, uh, D'Alembert, in his very interesting preface in, in the Encyclopedia, talks about the importance of reason. But then when pressed as to what the right reasoning form is, he identifies a sociological group, they freely, the good guys, who in effect show us what is to reason. And that's why I think it's such a good question. Because in effect, it's all about sociological privilege. Aristotle talked about the wise, meaning these guys who get to tell the rest of us what's right. And I think we need to be very, very skeptical about that. Thomas Hobbes, a leading figure of the English Enlightenment, said, look, uh, when we talk about right reason, of course we mean the way I think. and That's the issue, really. So for me, there's a real concern here. We perhaps think and forget that, um, that for example, there's a law of uniformity of thinking. But very often, this is because of the influence of Western pressure, very often perpetuated by colonialism. So it seems to me that we do indeed have reason. But I'm with Pascal. The greatest achievement of reason is to show its limits. And that's where the interesting conversation starts.
1: OK, so quite diverse opening positions there. So let's move on to our first theme, which is what's wrong with reason? Now, Mary Jane, you've already given us a little taster
2: of what you think is wrong with reason. Perhaps you could develop that. Well, right. So as Paul was saying, of course, I, I, I have nothing, again, against the faculty of reason. Clearly, we're having... a some kind of rational conversation at the moment. And it's it's absurd to claim that somehow you can make a rational argument that somehow escapes you from the, gets you out of the logic of rational. What's wrong with reason, I think, is the way historically that it's been deployed as a tool of belittlement and derision and even enslavement and all the rest of it. So um, So I think that any kind of coming to terms with, or any defense of the importance of rationality at least needs to come to terms with the history of its categorical deployment. That's just one one bit of it. I'll stop there. Would you agree with that, Paul?
3: Well, I mean, there's there's no question that um, there have been lots of abuses of anything. You know, as I say, the concept of freedom can be abused, the concept of rationality can be abused, the concept of truth can be abused. The one big um, target is the notion of objectivity, which you are also alluding to. Because, so, of course, look, there are two issues. What one of them? What is, for instance, the notion of objective truth or objective rationality? How do you recognize it? And when you have a contested case, how is, can that be settled itself in a rational way? Having said all of that, there were clearly cases where people in a position of power were able to force their own views on other people and then cloak themselves in the mantle of truth and objectivity and rationality and so on and so forth. You know, if you're in a position of power, you control the means of production, you control the enforcement apparatus, and you want to foster a certain kind of practice, for instance, maybe you want to enslave lots of people because that's very good for your own wealth, then you can say, you can add on, well, this is the right thing to think and, uh, and uh, this is the, the, the evidence supports that these people are subhuman and the evidence supports that women are irrational and all of that. Now that doesn't make it true, just because you say so doesn't make it true and you know what your best weapon is for uncovering this kind of abuse. It's the notion of rationality because the notion of rationality says you should only say things that you have good evidence for And when you go and subject the case that people have made for the subjugation of women or the subjugation of black people, and you look and you see that that evidence is ridden with fallacies and ridden with lies, that is the best weapon you have for correcting it.
4: Um, I like this line of thought, but I I wonder where it takes us, because as I look at the history of human thought, what I see is multiple rationalities, and I want to know which rationality do I choose, because there are so many there. I don't want to be told which one I choose, I want to be able to choose it for myself. I mean, we're talking about truth, I mean, mean, you all know what the Russian word for truth is Pravda, and Pravda is about the Soviet authorities telling you what to think. And I think we we want to find some way of being rational, but also having the freedom to choose what we genuinely think is right. The point I think it's very important to make here is that we live in what's sometimes called a post-truth generation. I hope that's wrong, but I think there are worrying signs. But if we look at um, psychologists who are looking at the human decision-making processes, you'll very often find um, that very often people decide what they would like to be right, and then, in effect, develop arguments in its justification subsequently. In other words, if you like, the kind of emotional side of us is driving what we think is rational, because we have certain reasons to want certain things to be true. And that seems to me to be a really important thing to tease I'm all for reason, but the problem is that word reason provides us with such a difficult word to calibrate, and you have to calibrate a tool before you can use it.
3: Not that hard to calibrate. <laughs> so uh, first of all, it would be, there's this talk of multiple rationalities, and that suggests that uh, we have a menu of options about how to think, and we face this choice of where, which one should we choose. Now even if that were the case, which I think is not the case, there would presumably have to be, if it's go- the choice is going to be rational, some overarching norms that tell you which of these particular norms you should choose. Okay. But in fact, I don't believe that there is such a thing as multiple rationalities, or not anything that's seriously on offer. I mean, of course, we can distinguish on the one hand between scientific method and logic. We can have tea leaf reading, that's a possible practice, right? Crystal ball gazing is another possible practice. I mean, of course, you mean something else, maybe something of anthropological interest, I'm not sure. But in fact, if you really look at it, you know, the philosopher Susan Huck, philosopher of science said, Scientific method is really ordinary thinking only more so. By which she means, it's really ordinary methods of reasoning about anything that you would employ, except done more rigorously with greater controls, with greater clarity, and so on and so forth. That's really all it is. So for instance, when you go out and you see that the streets are wet, you think, oh, it must have rained. Now what is that? That's just called inference to the best explanation. Okay. Um, What is the best explanation for all this? If only a little patch of the street were wet, you'd think, well, maybe somebody hosed it down. But if it's all wet, then it's probably rained. Okay, now that is a very important method that's used in the most sophisticated kind of scientific reasoning. But you all recognize it as an absolutely inevitable aspect of human rationality. And the question is, at that most basic level, what are the alternatives to
4: inference to the best explanation? Well, let deduction? me tell you, let me thank begin to you Thank you up. so
1: much, Paul, yes. for bringing us directly <laughs> yeah. onto our second theme. Right. Is there an alternative <laughs> to
4: relying on religion, on reason? Well, one, one <laughs> answer <Religion>. is <laughs> yeah. going to be science, isn't it? But I mean, I, I, as someone who used to be a scientist myself, I, I mean, you talk about the scientific method. Scientific methods, yes, because each scientific community develops its own distinct method, adapted to the research question under investigation. Could you something, can going? I continue, please? Yeah, yeah. And I think the important thing to appreciate is that this is diverse, and that each of them develops their own criteria, which are not necessarily shared across scientific communities, which are adapted to those tasks. And yes, I'm into inference, the best explanation, but look at the criteria. How do we evaluate those? Simplicity, elegance, utility, all these things, Which is number one, which is number two? What criteria do we have in developing these criteria and then applying them? It seems to me it's easy to say, it's harder to do. And therefore, for me, science is a very good way ahead to try and avoid some of the problems we have the reason. But the problem is, even in science, as Karl Popper and others have pointed out, we very often have to make judgments Judgments which, in effect, are trying to interpret evidence and not able to decide which is the best way of proceeding. So, again, there's a real issue here about judgment. And that seems to me to be something we can begin to feed into this wider debate, which is the role of judgment in trying to sort out these different positions.
2: So, let me swerve and widen a little bit um, in terms of alternatives to reason. Again, I don't want to argue about whether or not it's possible to break beyond the bounds of reason and say something profoundly, uh, fundamentally irrational. But I think that there are um, alternatives to the insistence upon a particular protocol of reason, whether scientific, whether legislative, whether uh, in the court system. Um, And these alternatives would be things like Testimony, which doesn't necessarily always come from a rational place. Again, for people who live fundamentally absurd lives, it's very difficult to give an account, a rational account of one's upbringing or one's situation. I think music absolutely is a way of communicating that doesn't rely on reason. Um, uh, Lament, protest, these are all, and and again, I don't want to say there's no reason here. There are alternative reasons, poetry, alternative logics that make points that uh, Attest to experience that de- make demands uh, that don't necessarily conform to the strictures of reason, as demanded by, say, the court system, or as demanded by, say, the scientific community, or as demanded by particular platforms that you need to uh, make yourself intelligible in order to become a political leader. Um, there, so these these would be these would be alternatives to reason. Paul, cool. would you like to respond to that?
3: Uh, so you know, part of the problem is to say exactly what it is that's at issue. I mean, yeah. if you if uh, if the question is, are there um, ways of learning things about oneself and the world that aren't necessarily discursive? Uh, they don't—they're not theories; they're not uh, ways of attempting to describe things. I think the answer is yes. For instance, in the case of music is a very good one. It's—it's it's actually quite difficult to say exactly how it is that one learns from music, though it's quite clear, got a very clearly got a very important connection to emotions and learning both about emotions that you might not experience under other circumstances, and certainly about the intensity of the emotions that you would not otherwise feel were it not for certain kinds of artistic and musical experience. So there is, that should, I mean, if that's the issue between us, then we're in agreement. (laughs) Uh, There is, is certainly much more to learning about the world than, as it were, cranking out some scientifically and logically respectable thing. Um, The the question that, as I was taking it, is Is there an alternative to reason when it comes to, as it were, figuring out how things are in the world in the most, is there there a non-scientific way, as it were, of doing science uh, or doing what science does? And I think that's where I I believe there really is no good alternative.
2: I, and I guess it would come down to asking, um, well, if we're trying to get at some kind of truth of things, is a uh. scientific uh, approach the only way to get at a truth of things? Or is something like, for example, that testimony or lyrics to songs or something like that, a different way to get yeah. at, a, at a truth of things?
3: And maybe I could add a little something sure. to this. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the most ambitious of artists, um, for instance, Wagner, believed in a thesis that you could call philosophical aestheticism which was the idea that you could express in art truths that no other medium could capture. Um, And, you know, the the later operas are are all about this idea. And one of the things that strikes you, though, is that um, at the end, even there, there is an indispensable place for rational assessment because what we know from art is that it can mislead just as easily as it can lead you to truth. So for instance, there is a wonderful case to be made that de Valcure tells you that uh, incest is not as morally reprehensible as you might have thought initially. But on the other hand, it also leads you to have kind of heightened emotions of excitement at the idea that Siegfried is going to decapitate this, uh, this Person who has been taking care of him all of this time. So it can lead you astray just as well as it can lead you to truth. And at the end of the day, you can't escape deciding rationally whether what it's showing you is something true or something false.
4: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses, and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. But I'd like to pick up on this point about, about science. I mean, I, I think science is wonderful, but I mean, it does leave a lot of questions unanswered. I mean, I mean, science is very, very good at helping us to understand how our universe functions. But I think many of us are thinking about issues like, well, why are we here? What's the point of life? How do we act in this situation? I'm not sure science helps us there. I mean, it may give us some information, but clearly we're having to think this thing through. Um, my concern simply is it's almost as if we have to think in different ways in different areas of life there's no kind of one rational norm we use when we're doing science and then the same rational norm we use when we're doing meaning of lifetime stuff and my own view which is contestable is simply that we we have we have like the philosopher Marion Midgley says we have to use different intellectual toolkits for the different challenges which we are faced and okay that, that sounds difficult but it does seem to face up to the kind of challenges that we face.
1: But I don't think anyone here would disagree with that. Is this a point of agreement between the three of you?
3: Well, uh, except that I haven't heard an example of the kind of multiple methods that you think are, are in play. Maybe you could give one concrete example.
4: Well, certainly. I mean, if you look at, for example, at um, quantum theory, one of the key questions here is how on earth you decide what the best way of explaining certain phenomena are. When all the answers you're going to give are empirically equivalent and therefore cannot actually be resolved, so how do you make a judgment as to whether, for example, the Copenhagen interpretation is right or Einstein's right, or in effect the Bohr, the Bohm approach is right? And what you'll end up doing is having to make a judgment on the base of less than adequate criteria. For example, you might say judgment. This one seems a little bit forced, but that's that's. That's kind of way, not really a rational judgment. This one isn't very elegant. Again, that's that's kind of way, not yeah. entirely rational judgment. But so you're using other criteria to try and evaluate. But
3: things. you know, the reason why the interpretation of quantum mechanics is still controversial, in just the way that you indicated, is precisely because the evidence does not settle the matter. And so, if the evidence does not settle the matter, you don't just plump for something because you feel like it. What you do is you say I, the, the, the evidence doesn't settle the matter, <laughs> but and so we will have to, to keep working until until we do settle the matter.
2: But usually that's really that an
3: affirmation we, of rationality rather than a denial of it.
2: Maybe, but the rationality is hiding all of these aesthetic uh, commitments, right, and sort of visceral uh, reactions against the opponents. So when you see proponents of, say, the many-worlds interpretation, or you see that, well, proponents of the many-worlds interpretation will say, it just doesn't seem to me that a particle can, of its own volition, decide where on the screen that it's going to land. That's seems absurd to me, therefore it must be the case that really there is a fundamentally deterministic universe and I, so for, I'm going to side with the many worlds interpretation because it gives me a fundamentally determinate universe because that feels better to me. right? The aesthetics are just motivating the, the rational decision between these two. The same thing happens on the, on the Copenhagen side, I would say. Right? I, I prefer the kind of relational, oh, the particle's entangled with the apparatus which is entangled with me and we're all kind of one. All right? And that kind of commitment to that uh, ontic or ontological relation. Then fuels uh, this uh, sense that somehow Copenhagen is more rational than the commitment to the infinite, infinite, infinite worlds of the many worlds interpretation. Um, But I think that those claims to rationality are hiding these kind of alternative uh, visceral and sort of uh, attracted aesthetic judgments.
3: No, for the people who work on the notion of rationality, for instance, even Quine made this point, the idea that the simpler theory or the more beautiful or elegant theory, there is such a thing as an elegant theory and so on. The idea that that is a reason for believing it more likely to be true is nothing other than wishful thinking. Okay? And the thing that tells you that is the theory of rationality. <laughs> because rationality tells you just because unless, we, unless we, can, we have some axiom from somewhere that says the universe is more likely to be simple and elegant than complicated and so on, if the empirical evidence does not distinguish between two empirically equivalent theories, then the rational thing to think is I don't know which one is correct, okay?
4: they do make decisions. And a point that needs to be emphasised is it's not as if um, a scientist is saying on a priori rational grounds, here are the criteria I'm going to use. These are criteria that emerge in practice. This criterion, for example, beauty, actually seems to work. Now, we don't know why it does work, but actually it is a guidance. And so these are criteria that are not given rationally, rather they emerge in the course of practice. People find this seems to help us, this seems to help us, and we then use them because they are found to be useful in trying to arrive at safe theory choice.
3: If simplicity has led you more often than not to the truth, then that's an inductive, rational basis on preferring simpler theories.
4: It is, but it is is—it is something that emerges from practice. Yes, indeed. It That's is, what induction is. You is have not, to actually see with the And therefore, you have true. to use judgment where well, these are in competition, where in effect a simpler theory does not seem to deliver, but a more complex one does. We have to make a judgment as to how to hierarchize these particular criteria.
1: So, we've talked quite a bit about the occasions when reason is the, the best fit, the best tool for the job, and occasions when it might not be. What about social functioning? Is reason necessary for social harmony? Mojay, also right. I,
2: I, I, yes, of course, right. I, yes, of course, it's important for social harmony. It's important that we know what uh, we know what four o'clock means, so that we can all show up at the same place. That, right, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I also worry about the difficulty that the insistence on particular configurations of rationality has on on specific people. So I think, for example, about. Um, I, I don't know how, how far this news traveled. Um, we have, as you probably know, just a constant uh, execution by, of, of black Americans by white Americans. It just happens constantly in the US. One uh, infamous case was Trayvon Martin, 17-year-old kid walking home with a hoodie and Skittles, uh, and a uh, white and Latino man um, ended up uh, killing him because he looked threatening. Um, Trayvon Martin was on the phone with his best friend at the time, having a conversation with her. She heard most of it, um, and so she was brought up to testify and strangely in this way that made it almost seem like Trayvon Martin was sort of guilty of his own death and she had to somehow exonerate him for having been murdered. Um, and the question keeps coming up, you know, what did this happen first, or did that happen first, or this other thing happened first, and she couldn't quite remember because she was deeply traumatized and because also she wasn't educated in a system that allowed her to s- sit, stand before a court of law and make the kind of argument that people were looking for, suddenly public opinion turns against Trayvon Martin, against her, she just becomes the object of absolute public ridicule and so, in In this sense, the insistence on rationality becomes a socially divisive tool that actually ends up abusing particular people um, when they're they're, they're grieving um, and unable, perhaps, to make themselves as intelligible as humanly possible. So I I worry about those kinds of cases when we just make these blanket statements like rationality is the sine qua non of any kind of social relations. It also, the insistence upon it does a ton of damage. Alistair.
4: Um, again, I would like to say yes, but it's a very qualified yes. Um, my favorite Oxford philosopher is Isaiah Berlin. And Berlin came to Britain from the Soviet Union. And he was horrified by the impact of ideology and worried by the intellectual grounds of ideologies. And, and he did a lot of work in this. But what I want to do is just kind of tease out what he says. I think it's very helpful to us to think this through. What Berlin said is, look, um, there are various things you can prove by reason. absolutely clear about that. There are certain things you can prove by science. Again, very clear about that. But then there's this, this kind of twilight zone, this area of religious, anti-religious, social, ethical, political beliefs where actually you can't really prove these by reason or by science. And yet the paradox is these are the things that really matter to us. In other words, we have to learn to live with this, this almost dilemma that the beliefs that really give us significance or really seem to us to be important actually lie beyond proof. And Berlin is, is simply saying, look, let, let's just face up to this one, that we may realize that we would be able to justify what we believe, You Argue for relativism, saying we can give good reasons saying this is right, but we cannot actually prove that we're right. Now, he then draws this conclusion, which I think is really helpful, because to me it's an extremely important counterbalance to this threat of um, privilege or this threat of ridicule of those who disagree with you. Berlin's point is that since we cannot actually prove that these things are right, we ought to treat each other with respect. And I think, I, I take it away, I've, I've learned from that. He doesn't say toleration, no, 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 respect. Respect is something different. I don't agree with you, but I have to try and take you very, very serious. I might even learn something from you. So I, I, I think that if Berlin is right, I mean, he, I mean, obviously it gives rise to a kind of philosophy that we might have problems with, but, but you can see he's thinking through the issue of social cohesion. How can we differ on ultimate questions, but still cohere, as a body and still take each other seriously. And if I may say so, I I think Berlin really needs to speak to us today because these issues are really very much on the agenda.
3: Well, um, let me say that we should treat one another with respect, even about things that we can prove (laughs) that you're wrong about. See, this is one of the enduring fallacies, I think, of people's relations to these notions of rationality, objectivity, normative authority, and so on and so forth. As I say, then this goes to the, to the, to the nub of it. I think that's, wh- that's where Mary Jane started. People are afraid of these notions because they are afraid of the way they have been abused. Okay. And th- it's very important to distinguish between the abuse and the notions themselves. So, um, for instance, you you know, a standard reaction that people have if you say, oh, I'm an absolutist about morality. I believe there are absolute facts about what one ought to do and what one ought not to do. I mean, to give a chestnut that that is, is, is is a bit of an odious example, but nevertheless I use it because basically nearly everyone will agree that this is an example of an absolute moral truth. One ought not to, torture an infant for one's own amusement. Okay? I say nearly everyone because when there are very committed relativists in the room, some one of them might occasionally say, well, how much fun is at issue? And <laughs> drawing gasps from the room. But really, most sensible people will say that's an example of an absolute prohibition. Right. Now, the, the, the thing is that what people are afraid of is if you say, well, there are these absolute truths, then the next step is going to be an I know what they are. And then the third step is going to be, and I'm going to ram them down your throat if you don't believe them because after all, I believe they're true and I believe I know them and you disagree with me. And it's very important that that third thing does not follow. In fact, morality itself will tell you that you're not allowed to ram something down somebody else's throat just because it's true and you know it, okay? Rules of conduct, rules of appropriate behavior, rules of social harmony, will themselves prohibit that kind of behavior. So as long as you see that distinction, as long as you see that these two commitments do not lead to the third, that there are rules about how you treat people who disagree with you, especially in domains when it's contestable, when it's difficult to prove. Proof anyway is nearly always out of the question outside of logic and mathematics. But in any of those cases, you have to treat other people with respect and with the dignity that they have. And once you see that distinction, you will no longer be as afraid of truth, reason, rationality, and objectivity.
2: So I'm, I'm drawn to this, but can you give us an example of a community that has believed in absolute moral truths and not attempted to impose them on other people? Well,
3: yeah, I'm, I'm one. one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, I can
3: give, and I have some right friends, saying. too. Now look, historically, <laughs> Historically, historically, see this is the thing. But yeah. you have to remember, you see, part of our journey here is out of simply wielding power, no, never mind whether it's, it's backed up by truth or not. <laughs> then in the age of the post-Enlightenment, yes, we think you have to show that things are true and you have to show that they're backed by reason. But then when you do that, you might think, well, I'm going to do you a big favor. I'm going to colonize you and bring you the superior knowledge that I have. Mm-hmm. So one response to this kind of colonial project is to say, you know what, there is no such thing as a superior knowledge. Each each community has knowledge that's appropriate to its own setting. That's what leads to a kind of relativism about truth, relativism about rationality, relativism about objectivity. The better thing to say is, yes, no, look, we do know that the Earth goes around the sun. You might come across somebody who disputes that. You might show them the proof you have. They still resist it. You're not allowed to. Abuse them just because they disagree with you.
2: That's the right. Sure, point. interpersonally, I think that this works, right? But politically and institutionally, there's I no don't, reason
3: why it shouldn't translate into that level. It
2: would be lovely, <laughs> but then we have to have faith that there is such thing, for example, as rationality independent of the historic deployments of the category of rationality, and that that's we may we may. Well, that may seems to be
1: this. the key issue here. That, that Paul, your your key point is that um, we need to distinguish rationality from its historical abuses. Right. Is there some reason why rationality has been so vulnerable to those abuses? Is there something no. inherent to it that that means this keeps happening? Um...
3: I don't want to monopolize. I do well, have something to say about that. I'll say yeah. something, and that leads to a very <laughs> interesting question. I'll say
4: something. I mean, my problem is, I agree that there have been abuses, but at the time, this was thought to be rational. What mm-hmm. I want to know is, let's imagine somebody hundred years from now who's looking back at us, and we think we're being rational. What will they decide is good use of reason? What will be Bad use of reason. I think the real issues. Is we're in the situation. It's so difficult. And again, your point about respect is so important here. So mm-hmm. I'll step back.
2: I, and I also worry that sometimes um, communities who aren't expected to produce things like reason, um, reason isn't recognized when it comes from them, or it's somehow denigrated. When it, so I think, for example, of you know C.S. Lewis, our favorite guy. Um, he wrote this article called in uh, 1929 called "Priestesses in the Church?" Question mark. And his argument is. Listen, there is no, as it turns out, rational reason not to ordain women. Women have made the claim based on scripture, based on reason, based on natural law, that they ought to be ordained just as equally as men but you know, something doesn't quite feel right about reason <laughs> here, you know? Does everything have to be so rational, right? The minute that women start using reason in the church, suddenly reason is insufficient, which it seems to be some kind of indication that maybe the stability of the category of reason has more to do with the people who are deploying it than it has to do with some kind of, imperial, uh, sort of uh, ideal uh, conceptual integrity of the term itself.
3: What is your best defense against, you know, people who say, here are these racial theories that allow us to treat people differentially. What's the best defense of I think we them?
1: know what's coming now, don't we? <laughs> Repeat after me. <laughs> but this is,
3: <laughs> oh, I rest my case.
1: And that is it from us. Thank you so much for coming. Do come over to the bookshop.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Mary-Jane Ruperstein, Alistair McGrath, and Paul Bogossian. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, then please do head over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. This helps other people find the podcast and lets us know what you think of Philosophy for Our Times. Please do subscribe and tell anyone you might know about the podcast, and of course, tune in next week. For more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's Biggest Ideas,